0: Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your Word, guide and lead us, show us what you want us to see from this, this section, and we thank you in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. We're continuing in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we've been talking about uh, Jesus inspiring examples that we're that he chastises his children. The purpose of chastisement is that they will be brought back into fellowship, and then he started looking into different ways of conduct that we were supposed to follow. And this is where we were leaving off. The, last thing, the first thing we did is lift up your hands. They're hanging down. Make straight your paths. Uh, follow peace all men in holiness without which you cannot see God. And that's where we ended last week. We're going to be on chapter uh, no, verse 15. So verse 15 says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby being def- many be defiled. Lest there be any fornication or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For we know how that afterwards, when he would have inherited he was rejected. For he found no place for re- uh, repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. For you are not coming to the mount which might be touched... And that burned with fire north into blackness and darkness and tempest. And the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the words which, which voiced when they, they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken unto them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned and, or thrust through with the dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But you come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, holy, Jeru- the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Let's stop there, because there's quite a bit here. <laughs> Alright, so we're going to look at this. Looking diligently, at verse 15, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. This is not saying that they will lose their salvation, but they fail to live up to God's grace, which is all of us at some point in time. We all fail to live up to grace. But this is talking to somebody who's habitually failing to live up to God's grace. And this will bring problems in a church. And we see this several times, because you'll hear people, the lost say, well, I don't go to church because there's hypocrites in the church. Or... You might even meet somebody who says, well, I'm a Christian, but I just don't like the body of Christ. They're, they're mean and nasty to me, and I don't like them. Well, at certain times, if I hear those kind of comments, I'm going, is this person really a believer? Because Jesus said, you will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. And if somebody cannot stand being around the body of Christ, there's a problem uh, with their relationship with God. Now, I know that the body of Christ can be a pain in the neck sometimes. There's always people in the body that are hard to get along with, can be rude, can be obnoxious. But we need to learn to be able to love one another. And this pers- these people who fail, fail the grace of God. God gives us grace, and he expects us to be holy. That's what the previous verse said. We are to be holy. Holy. And this is the thing that God expects because he's living in us to make us act holy. And he's changing us from the inside and we become more holy, more righteous, more loving, more kind, more merciful. Will we ever be perfect with it? No. But we will be better at it as we go along. And this is what he's saying that you, know, that you don't fail in this, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. Now bitterness, how easy is it to get bitter? But bitterness is really rooted in our pride. I did not get what I wanted and therefore I get bitter about not getting what I expected. And expectations can be a really bad thing for us. We get angry when we don't get our expectations met. We get bitter when we don't get our expectations met. And divisions between people happen because they didn't meet the needs that I wanted them to meet. And we start attacking people. And Jesus said we are to be the servant of all. And if all of us were trying to be the servant of everybody else, instead of looking at what people are doing for me, where would the church be? If everybody in the church was being a servant to everybody else in the church, then I would be getting served by lots and lots of people and getting my needs met without expecting to have my needs met because I'm looking to serve them. And then I look around and I'm getting all these blessings because my needs are being met because everybody is being servants to everybody else. And all I did was be servants to them. And that's what this is all about. What are my expectations with God? And we need to be careful about our expectations with God because in this, especially in America, our expectations is that God's going to bless us, and you know, blessings are going to rain on us, and we're not going to have any problems, and nothing, nothing but good will be, will be what we're looking at. Well, if that's our expectation with God, we are going to be totally disappointed. Because number one, he never promised that to us in the scriptures. But in the North American church, that is what is taught to a lot of people nothing but blessings, you know, God is so good. He's going to bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. And on one side, I understand what they're saying. Yes, I have great blessings by following God. But those blessings usually come in the form of trials and tribulations to have to walk through. And we want to be careful about what our expectation is because expectations lead to bitterness and disappointment and anger because when I'm expecting somebody to do something and they don't do it, then I'm going to be upset about it. Now what's even worse is if they didn't know that I expected them to do it. Now I'm mad at them. They don't know why I'm mad at them. Now they get mad at me because I'm mad at them, and I haven't told them why I'm mad at them because you, they didn't meet my expectation that they didn't know anything about. And it's a pretty sad uh, circle that goes on. And you can see it all the time with people. You'll see people that are just, why are you upset? Well, they didn't do something. What didn't they do? Well, they didn't do this. Well, did you have a contract? No, they just should have known that this is what they were supposed to do. You know, why are you mad at your spouse? Well, they didn't, do, they didn't meet all my needs. Who said they were supposed to meet all your? Well, that's just what I expected when I got married. The husband comes in, his wife didn't have dinner ready for him and didn't have the clothes clean and the house clean, and that's what he expected the wife to do. You know, and she's going, well, I also work all the time, and you know, and I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't marry you to, do, to be your personal slave. <laughs> you know, and this is going to be very hard, is what are the expectations that you have, and those expectations need to be expressed if you'd have them. But it would be even better to say, I want to serve this individual, and if I get return service, praise God, and I'll be happy. If not, I wasn't expecting it anyway, because I'm just the servant. The servant in in the, in the in a mansion or whatever is not expecting people to say thank you to them. matter of fact, it's hard for them because nobody ever even if they're doing their job right, nobody even knows that they were there doing it because they're very quiet and quick about what they do. you know if you go to a good restaurant where good servers are, they're so fast and so good at what they're doing, you barely even know that they've been at your table to take care of you and that's the excellent side, and that's the high end. Those high end ones, you don't even know they're hardly there. They're in and out. They've got your drink filled while you were sitting there talking to somebody and their drink is filled. Uh, the plates are cleared, you know, you're, you're barely even knowing what's going on. Because, and they're not looking for that input, that recognition from you at all times. Most of us are looking for recognition for what we do and expect recognition. And when we have that expectation that we are bound to be disappointed. And this leads to bitterness. And then there are some churches that have lots and lots of bitter people. Uh, you know, they cause trouble, stir up trouble. Uh, they have to complain about everything. Thankfully, our church does not have very many people that, that way. But there are churches that have lots of people that way. And you're like, oh no, here they come again. You know they're gonna do nothing but complain about all kinds of stuff. And then their complaints draw everybody else into those complaints, and all of a sudden you've got this whole root of bitterness springing up trouble, bringing trouble in there, that people, you know have you ever been around somebody and they were so down that you you felt really up until they came and then you were down and you didn't even know that you had things that you were supposed to be upset about? until they showed up and told, pointed out all the things you're supposed to be, be upset about, and you would have been better off saying, I don't want to hear any of it. Let me go talk to somebody <laughs> that's positive. Yeah. And sometimes, even if you don't accept what they say, it still makes you feel miserable. It's like, wow, this person just tries to bring everything down, and they're just so, you know, I get burdened just because they're so down. <laughs> it's, and I feel they're living so far beneath where God wants them to live, because they're so disappointed with everybody and everything. And you're going, you know, and, and they won't listen to you. You say, why don't you just take these things to God and start looking at the good side of things. And, oh, no, 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 this, this isn't happening, that isn't happening. And all of this comes down to stirring up trouble. And then it says, and thereby many be defiled. So these troublemakers come in, and now... Other people are are now unhappy, looking at the negative side, maybe complaining, gossiping, whatever else comes along with this this whole thing. And a cycle starts developing that breaks down the church. It's a cancerous wound that comes into the church and causes trouble. And this is one of the things we need to be very, very careful about what we listen to and what we hear from other people. Because when we listen and hear things, it affects the way we think. Even if we don't think it does, it does. It puts a root into us that is a problem. And if we keep hearing the same thing over and over again, and it might have been that one person who started it all, but we hear it from several people, then all of a sudden, we're not looking very well at some other person in the church, or some other activity of the church, or the pastor, or a teacher, or some other individual, and we're looking at, well, five people told me that they've got a problem, and one person is the one that shared it with five people who then told you, your problem is you listened to something you shouldn't have been listening to in the first place, <laughs> this root of bitterness, and This is one of the problems we have with gossip. And churches have a real good way of gossiping. We need to pray for brother so-and-so because this is what's going on in their life. Why don't we just stop? Brother so-and-so needs prayer. They're having a really hard time right now. We need to pray for them. We don't have to tell anybody why because God knows why they need prayer. And then we present it. Now, if they're sick, that's a different thing. We can go, God, this person is really having some problems with... COVID or pneumonia or or you know, heart disease or something, that's a different story. But you know, to go into they need help because their marriage is falling apart, you know, no, we don't need that. Their marriage needs prayer. Okay, fine. We'll pray for their marriage. We don't need to know the whys and the wherefores and the you know, they're having an affair or whatever. We don't need to know any of that stuff. We just pray for them. And this is very important because all of this negativity and, and stuff devours the church and we want to be careful of this and this is what he's saying here is to be avoiding that and he says lest there be any fornication or profane fornicator or profane person now these are very strong words fornication here is literally porinia anything sexually immoral is what this verse is talking about All right, not just Sex outside of marriage, but all forms of sex out of marriage and and adultery and and all of that is to be avoided. All right. And then he says, or profane person. And profane is kind of an interesting word, it literally means common or ungodly. God has placed us at a higher standard uh, than, than the world. if we live at the level of the world, even if we're not being ungodly, we are living a profane life. I'm not so sure it's true as much as it used to be, but you know, many years ago, the military were to act at a higher standard than the rest of the world. You wore a uniform. You represented the country. You were expected to live at a much higher rate. Uh, when my dad was early on in his career, if you wrote a bad check in the military, you were in trouble. You know, the bank may not have been, been that big a deal. You paid it, but your CO, you could be called up and, and reprimanded. Nowadays, they don't even care anymore. It's not even, it's not a big deal. They, you live like the world. And that's the kind of picture that we have as Christians. We are to live at a higher standard than the world. Because we represent God, He is our master, we're in His army. <laughs> we're expected to live at a state that's different from the world. otherwise we are just being profane, common, even if it's not ungodly we're just if we're just living like everybody else, you know uh, we're listening to certain gossip thats maybe not. All that bad or or we're living you know watching different the, the same things that they show we're doing the same things that they do uh, maybe we're uh, social drinkers we not don't have a drinking problem, but we're just out there you know drinking our one or two drinks a you know, night with a, with the crowd and they're going well they're not any different than than we are you're not getting drunk you're not you know you're not all that and so there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't, but you're still living as a common person instead of a holy and righteous person and this can be a big problem and we need to be very careful we should be at a higher standard than the world not because we're trying to say I'm winning brownie points with God and everything but we represent God to the world and they, would ex- they expect you know, unfortunately the world has a high, too high a standard for us They expect us to be perfect and if we make any mistake at all they're going, see you're just a hypocrite like like everybody else. They have way too high a standard. But the problem for most Christians we have way too low a standard. Because we have liberty and and grace, sometimes we forget that we do have a standard that God says live a holy life. And sometimes we forget that. The world has too high and we have too low. Somewhere in the middle is where we need to be. (laughs) Uh, trying to live as holy as God enables us to live. Not a righteous, more righteous than you and, you know, and, and hypocrite. You know, but living a lifestyle that says, I follow God and I have a higher calling. And I've got to live by this calling. Now they're going to test it, just like we talked about this morning. Anytime God moves, <laughs> Satan attacks. And anytime we're representing God, he will attack. So we need to be ready for that. But God is saying, I want you to be separate from the world. Be, be a little higher. <laughs> Not because of anything else, but just because we're his. He lives in us. And then he starts talking about Esau. This is from Genesis uh, chapter 25. If you don't know the story, Esau was out hunting. He comes back from the field. He was the older brother to, to Jacob by a very short period of time seems how they were twins and Jacob came out holding his brother's heel so literally we're talking minutes of the you know, or seconds of difference between this he comes in from hunting he's hungry Jacob is making a batch of porridge or stew or something it was something savory he said and Esau comes in give me some of your some of your food I had a bad day hunting I didn't get anything and I'm starving to death and he literally says, I'm, I'm so hungry, I'm gonna die. Now, he's only been out on the field one day, from what it, what it says, uh, but he comes back hungry. And Jacob says, No, I'm not giving you, it's mine. <laughs> what will you give it? What will you give for me? And he offers him a couple things. He goes, Nope, not interested. He goes, I want your birthright. Now, if you don't remember what the birthright is, the eldest male child in the Jewish family received a double portion of the inheritance. So depending on how large your family was, how big it is, they would add one one child to it and give them an extra inherit, extra portion. So in the case of these two, there's two of them, so they were divided in three. He'd have gotten two-thirds of the inheritance and Jacob was going to get one-third. And that's a pretty big deal. That That extra portion, though, was not for them to spend upon themselves. The eldest male was to be the head of the family going on. And if anything happened to any of their siblings, they were to take that extra portion and help out the, the family. Loan them money, whatever it took, get them out of, get them out of debt and instead of going into debtor's prison, uh, you know, help them out. And then hopefully get the money back to replace it. But th- their job was to take that money to support. And Esau's attitude toward it is, I don't care about that. You know, I don't even want to help you, Jacob, so you can have the portion. <laughs> you know, and he even said, what will, I, what will the extra portion, the birthright do to me because I'm going to die. I'm so hungry. Uh, and I've never been quite that hungry in my lifetime. He was only out for one day of hunting. Granted, he probably was out on the fields walking all day long and he was tired and grumpy, but he wasn't starving to death. <laughs> Uh, But yet, that was his attitude. But he looked lightly on this blessing from God. The blessing from God was that they were going to get a double portion for being the oldest, and he just said, I don't care about that. And that is something that this is pointing out. What is our attitude toward the blessings God has given us as his children? And there are a lot of his children out there that don't look very favorably to Living for Him and the grace of God and being covered by the blood. Sometimes you wonder, are they, are they covered by the blood? Are they, are they under grace? Because their attitude toward it is just so weak and so loose. Paul dealt with it. He said, you know, do you go out in sins that grace can abound? And he goes, God forbid. Because if you're truly a Christian, you're not going to want to go out just so more grace can be given to you. Yeah. And if you really understand it, we get so much grace without trying to sin, it's ridiculous. And if I'm going out and sinning just so I can get more grace, I don't understand the level of my sin. And here is what Esau did. He did not understand what it came down to. And then it says, you know that how afterwards, in verse 17, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Now this is kind of an interesting statement that he's using on here because he lost the blessing by Jacob's trickery. And his mother Rebecca told him, you know, your brother your dad is going to bless your brother and God said he was going to bless you. You go in now and get your father to bless you, you put on your brother's clothes, you put these skins on the back of your hand and on your neck, and you bring him this food that that I'm going to cook for him, his favorite food, and he will bless you. And Jacob was, and uh, Isaac was blind at this point, and he goes, you sound like Jacob, you smell like Esau, you're very, very furry and (laughs) and hairy like Esau, And he went to hug him and smelled the clothes and and the back of the neck being hairy. And it says, you must be Esau, even though you sound like Jacob. And gave him the blessing. And here it says that he didn't get it. He didn't get it. He was rejected. God had rejected him. God had rejected him from birth. We're told in, in the Old Testament that it says, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. And this was from their birth, before they had even done anything. Mostly because God knew Jacob's heart, and knew Esau's heart. And it's kind of hard to understand, because Jacob was a scoundrel for most of his life. He was the type of person who you did not want to negotiate with, because he won. Every negotiation until he ran into Laban, his uncle. And his uncle was just as treacherous as he was. And that's pretty good when you get two people who never lose in, in a negotiation together. Uh, trying to beat each other out all the time. And Jacob was going to say to him, you know, when he finally leaves, he goes, you have changed our agreement 20 times. And Laban never disagrees with him. So the the count must have been right. That... Laban was always changing it because Jacob was being blessed by God and he'd he'd meet the meet the requirement. Even though it was an obnoxious requirement, he would, he would be blessed and, and God would bless him. And Jacob had to learn to depend on God, and that is what he learned. Esau being rejected and lost not only the birthright, he lost the blessing. And God did not stop this that from happening. Even though Jacob stole stole the blessing, it says that Jacob was uh, Esau was rejected. Now this is kind of hard to understand. Part of it is God knew what was going to happen. He knew how it was going to happen. If uh, Jacob had just been patient, he would have gotten the blessing anyway, even though Isaac wanted to bless his oldest boy. And it's kind of a funny situation. They both had their favorite. Isaac liked Esau. Es- Esau was the outdoorsman, the the rough and tumble tumble guy. Jacob was the quieter, stayed at home. He's hidden, he's making the porridge when Jake, when when Esau comes home. He was, you know, more of the mama's boy by by our definition. I'm not saying he was a wimp or anything, but he was the one. he was comfortable. You know, being in the kitchen. He was comfortable on the farm. Esau is the one that's out in the woods hunting and, and doing all those man, manly things that, that, that uh, Isaac liked. And he wanted to bless Esau. Even though Rebekah had already told him, God has chosen Jacob. Jacob. Now, you're in trouble when you try to do things your own way, when you know that God has told you something else. And here, all of this worked out the way God said. Caused all kinds of friction in the family. And of course, Esau really loved losing that blessing. He was really happy and said, okay, I guess I lost the blessing. No, he said, I'm going to kill my brother. You know, you just wait. Dad's getting old. He's blind. He's, he's not healthy. When Dad dies, you're dead. <laughs> and He was sent away. (laughs) He was sent away to go get a wife, and didn't come back for quite a while. (laughs) Yeah, this about two decades before he finally came back. And, you know, and that's the story that he's referring to about Esau, the rejection of Esau. And it says, you know, afterwards, and that he would have inherited the blessing. He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, even though he sought it carefully with tears. Many times people's repentance, and we know this because we've probably done it ourselves at some point, is not real. We may be sorry we lost out on something, sorry we got caught, unhappy that we got caught, unhappy that we lost something, but that is not repentance. Oh, I am so sorry I got caught. And I used to ask my kids sometimes, are you sorry you got caught or are you sorry? And usually they didn't answer me, and I know that they were sorry that they got caught. And I hear it all the time in the prisons. You know, go, well, I am so sorry I did this. And I've asked a couple of inmates themselves, they go, are you sorry you got caught, or are you sorry you did what you did? And most of them just give me a dirty look because they know that they don't want to answer that question. Uh, I don't ask it to a lot of them, but I've asked it to a couple of people. Because most of us are not sorry that we did something. We're sorry we got caught. That is not repentance. Repentance is when we turn back to God and sorry for what we have done. Whether we got punished or not before that, we're sorry for what we have done because we hurt God. Not because we got caught, not because others caught us maybe. (laughs) Because even when we hurt God, we're not as, as impressed with it until somebody catches us and calls us a hypocrite or... Calls us out on what we've done, then we get sorry, and our goal should be to be sorry because we have hurt God and then repent and turn away from our sin. Esau's sorrow was not that. He was not sorry that he had done what he had done, he was sorry that he didn't get what he wanted in spite of his activities. And so, and it says he sought it with tears. He he begged and pleaded with tears. And if you read the story, he goes to his father and goes, you know, he goes, "Here's your food." And he goes, "Weren't you just here?" And he goes, "No." And he goes, "It was ja-, he goes, it was Jacob that was here." And he goes, "Bless me also." And he goes, "Well, I don't have anything to bless you with." And he goes, "Give me a blessing, any blessing at all." And he didn't get a very good blessing, because. His father had already blessed, thinking that he was blessing Esau, says, you're going to rule over your brother, you're going to have great mastery, you're going to have a huge, every blessing you could possibly think of was put on Jake, Jacob. And there was very little left to even, and you read his blessing, you will, you'll be a wild man and, you know, and, and, and win in dominion and eventually throw off the, 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 the covering of your brother. You know, not much of a blessing. Not much of a blessing at all. But that was all he had to give him because he would given everything, a full major blessing to Jacob. And it said even though he wanted it, it couldn't happen. And now he switches back to us. He says, for you are not come to a mount that might be touched and that burned with fire nor into, unto the blackness of and the tempest. So, what he's referring to here, you have not come to Mount Sinai, the law. Mount Sinai is what he's referring to. It was covered. It was burnt. It uh, was uh, thunder and lightnings on the on the mountain, and it was burning with fire. This is the description of Mount Sinai. He goes, you have not come unto the law. As Christians, we have liberty to do whatever we want to do because we are not under the law. We are under grace and mercy. Now, that doesn't mean we go out, like Paul says, and go out and do whatever we want because, hey, I have liberty. I can do what I want. Yes, on one side, it does mean that we can do what we want. Uh, Again, this is a term I learned around the military. I don't know if they did it so much in the other branches, but the Navy called. You know, when you got off the ship, you were on liberty, which meant that you could do what you wanted to do for however long you were on liberty. But there was always a little caveat. Do not disgrace the uniform. All right, So you could do whatever you wanted, but do not disgrace (laughs) what you stand for. Now that didn't stop everybody from necessarily disgracing the uniform while they were out on liberty. This is what God is saying here. We have liberty. We are free from the law, but not to disgrace the reputation of God, which kind of means we're still under some form of the law because there's a little bit of restriction there. We have liberty to do whatever we want, but don't bring shame to God's name, which means I can do a lot of things, but there are just few things that He's saying, please don't do these. It would make us look bad. <laughs> and we don't want to look bad. But you're under grace. If you go out and do it, you're under grace. And you're going to be protected. And you're, But we're not under the law. And this is a beautiful thing for us because of Jesus' blood and sacrifice. I am living in the Spirit who then guides me into Perfection. And this is one of the things that we have learned over the years as we grow in Christ. How many times do you even think about doing something wrong and the Holy Spirit starts saying, "No, you're not going to go there." And he said, "But I've always been able to do this before." And he goes, "No, you're not going to do that today." You know, and if you do do it, then you're convicted and go, "Oh, no, I need to repent, I need to confess." You know, and 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 get it cleared up between God this is our liberty being tempered by the Holy Spirit and then he goes the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the words which they heard entreated that the words should not be spoken unto them so if you read Exodus 19 uh, especially verse 16 when God was speaking to the people from Mount Sinai and you got to picture this they're in Mount Sinai up till now Moses has been the one that's been spoken to by God They get to Mount Sinai and they're camping and Moses tells them prepare your hearts and sanctify yourself for today God will speak to you. And from Mount Sinai sounding like a trumpet and and thunders God speaks to the people. And their reaction was oh boy we're talking to God. Let's worship God. It was Let's go hide in our tents. Moses, you go up and talk to him. We don't want him talking to us. And I don't know what it was like to hear God speak at that point in time, but their attitude was we don't want this is scary. We don't, and this is what he's talking about. The trumpet and the and the blasting of the of the voice. And it says, We don't want to hear from him. Moses, you go up there. You go talk to God for us. Verse 20 says, for the reasoning, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart. So here's the statement that they put, God even told him, put a fence around. So nobody accidentally touches the mountain or rushes to the mountain even. Uh, He didn't want anybody trying to come up and see him. He would talk to them, but he didn't want them to try to run up and see him, he said, if anybody touches the mountain, or anything touches the mountain, they will be killed. Because he was so holy, and they weren't. And so he put this in, and this is this area, the law builds a fence between you and God. If you want to live by the law, then you have to live by all the law, to be able to approach God. And this is the hard part that people have to look at. These, the, when you talk to somebody and go, well, I hope that I'm good enough to please God. You're not. You haven't kept the whole law. You failed in any part of the law. You're not good enough. And they go, well, that's harsh. Well, that's God's standard. This is why Jesus had to come to this world to die for our sins because we could not live up to the law. You know, and the funny thing is we can't even keep up to our own law. And it's quite quite interesting, you know, when you really bring it down to people. Well, you, well, I, I'm trying the best I can. I go find your you. but you don't even keep your. Own, you say I'm not going to do something. Right now, this is a great time to be talking to people because they all made New Year's resolutions. How long did it take you to break your own word, your own rule of your life that you made yourself? Nobody forced you to make. How long did it take you to break it? You know, most people were at the end of the month, most people have already broken every one of their resolutions that they have made. more than that. Men cannot even keep their own rules in their life, much less God's rules. Then that's just going to be the case when, when people stand before God and say, "Well, I don't know your rules is going to be fine. Let's talk about your rules." What rules did you make that you violated? What were your community rules that you violated? And God's going to just say, "Fine, you didn't you didn't know my laws?" Yeah. There's not a person in the world that's even kept their own personal rules, much less their community or their state or their country rules that they knew about. And God's going to say, "Well, fine, you didn't know my laws?" Let's see what and be guilty. And this is what he's saying here is You are not under, you are not brought to the law. And it says it was so twenty-one, so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Now we don't really did say that in Deuteronomy 919 when he was re re uh going. Because this was, you know, can you imagine the storm that was going on on Mount Sinai? The mountain burned because of all the lightning and the thunders and and God's voice as a thunder. Now, thunder can be scary enough just being thunder. But a voice that thunders could be very terrifying. And, you know, I don't know what that would have been like. I have no idea what it was, but Moses himself says, it terrified me to see what was going on up there on that mountain. And the people told him, you go there. <laughs> you actually go up and talk to him. And God actually called him up and talked to him. And I'm sure he didn't talk to him in a thunder once he got there. He talked to him just like he had at the burning bush. Very uh, much lower <laughs> in, in volume. And it says, but, in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. That means Jerusalem. It's a picture of God's grace and mercy. Because you have come to grace and mercy and and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Now this is kind of interesting. We don't know how many angels there are, but the writer here says innumerable. That's a lot of angels. There is a number. God knows the number, but there were so many he didn't say. You know, and we've got to figure they would oftentimes go you know, 100,000 times 100,000, so they could count to a million easily enough. How many more was that? I don't know. Innumerable angels. I would say it's at least more than a million because that's the number we see frequently in the scriptures. And I haven't seen many numbers bigger than a million. That was a big number for them to think of. Now, if you listen to some of our old songs, when we'd been there ten thousand years, it was written really in the 1800s. Ten thousand was a big number to the people back then. If you had ten thousand dollars in the bank, you were going to be set for the rest of your life and probably your kids' and your grandkids' life. You know, they they never thought that you would burn through ten thousand dollars. Now we can't even spend ten thousand dollars to buy a car or a house in today's world. You know, uh, we start talking about numbers that we can't comprehend being trillions, and our country is in trillions of dollars of debt, and we can't even comprehend that number. You know, that gets us into quadrillions and you know those things. You know, which we haven't hit yet. But uh, but he's saying there are so many angels we cannot count them. And they are the ones that help us. And verse 23, And to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn... consuming fire. So we're called to grace and mercy to a company of innumerable angels to the general assembly the idea here is to the gathering of the people the church so we we're, we're called to be before angels before the church and to the church of the firstborn which are written in the book of heaven. So those who have their names written in the book of life, they've come to Jesus Christ. And to the God, the judge of all. This is pretty interesting things. He's calling out a roll call of people that lives are presented before. The angels themselves, the rest of the world, the church, and to God himself as judge. And then, not only that, and to the spirits of the just men, made perfect. Made complete. And note this word, made. Made means that it was given to them, not that they did it themselves. We as Christians are made righteous, made just, by the declaration of God. Not by what we do. Not by the works that we do, but by what God does. And this is the good news for us. And I'm glad it is God that does it or I'd be in trouble. I am glad that he makes this declaration. He says that I am righteous. He says that I'm going to make you what I say you are. And he puts me in the situations that I eventually learn to grow. I may have to do it a hundred times before I finally grow. But he is the one that puts all these things into place. He puts the new heart of flesh into me. He puts the new spirit into me. He resurrects my life and my spirit to give me a new way of living that is now one that is going to lift him up rather than reject him as the, as the way of the world does. And it's him that does the work. And this is the great news for us that he does the work. And it says, "And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And this literally is, he is the intercessor, the mediator. And it's wonderful we have a mediator. We would probably use the term, we have a lawyer. When we do something wrong, He goes to the father who's the judge and he goes, Father, that sin has been paid for by my blood. This is our child. This is my bride. They have been covered by the blood. This is paid for because I paid the price. We have a great lawyer. He has never lost a case and never will lose a case. Uh, So we have a wonderful lawyer and It says, the blood of the sprinkling speaks better things than that of Abel. And this goes right back to the very first, well that's the third story of the Bible. (laughs) Cain and Abel. Abel gave a blood sacrifice to God. Cain, his brother, gave a sacrifice of fruits and vegetables and stuff that he could grow. The the toil of his own sweat and brow. Good works. Abel had a blood sacrifice representing the, the blood of Jesus and Jesus came along and he completed the sacrifice all the blood sacrifices in the Old Testament all pointed to what Jesus was going to do all of them there is a we're giving this blood but this blood is just a temporary picture of the blood that's going to actually be the one that fulfills the sacrifice The very first sacrifice ever made in the scriptures was when God killed the animals to make skins for Adam and Eve, showing them that blood had to be shed for the covering of sin. And that was the very first one. And people kind of gloss over it because they don't realize God, you know, a lot of people thought that God just, you know, okay, let there be skins. (laughs) I don't think it was that easy god i think literally killed animals to to get them skins showed them the cost of their fall that it was going to cost something and i think it's even worse for us because we don't realize the relationship they had with the animals every animal was their pet And you know i love i love the animals that i've had and everything but you know i don't make them family but you know there most people make these animals almost family. And can you imagine wearing the skin of your dog or your cat that you dearly love? You know, most of us don't fall in love with cows and goats and stuff like that, but, you know, so that's why I pick an an animal that we'd have fallen fallen in love with. A great big St. Bernard. (laughs) Big enough skin there to actually clothe you with. You know, and God says, this animal just gave its life so that you could be covered. What an impression they had when they looked at it. The deep love they had for that animal, now that animal's dead, knowing it is their fault because they disobeyed God. And this is the depth of what we should look at. When we disobey God, Jesus' blood was shed for us. And we need to really fully understand that our sin being covered was not a cheap thing. It was extremely expensive. Barnhouse called many people saying that many people have a cheap grace. They feel like it didn't cost anything. It cost Jesus his life to be able for us to receive grace. That is a huge cost. It cost the Father being separated from Jesus on the cross because Jesus became sin. It is not cheap that we have grace. And if we can toss around the idea that I've got grace covering me so easily, I don't understand the, the cost of, my, of that uh, grace either. And we need to be careful that we don't cheapen that sacrifice with our attitude. He says, verse 25, See that you refuse not him that speaks, okay, or decline to listen to shun him, Who that speaks? The Holy Spirit in this particular case. For if they escape not who refused him that spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn from him that speaks from heaven. What is this referring to? It's referring to stories like the Kohath rebellion, where they, and this goes back to Exodus. The the leaders in the tribe of Kohath said who are you Moses to be putting yourself up above us we're just as good as you and Aaron and God told Moses tell everybody to separate themselves from Kohath and their families everybody moved away from them the earth split open swallowed Kohath and his family and and, and closed back up again it's not the only time it happened Uh, Adab and Abihu the two sons of of Aaron go into the tabernacle on the first day of service in the tabernacle and do things their way instead of God's way, and God burns them with fire. God had a pretty serious attitude back then. If you don't listen and do things the right way, then you died. We're under grace. There might be more fear in our life if we actually had to, you know think about maybe dying you know Ananias and Sapphira lied in front of the church and say we gave we sold this property and we gave all the money to the church now it wasn't the problem that they gave didn't give the whole money to the church that wasn't the problem the problem was the lie that they told the church that we did give it and they were struck dead I don't know why God doesn't do more of that in today's world or not, but, you know, he doesn't, thankfully. <laughs> but this is what he's referring to. If, you, if God would take that kind of stance to what was being done on earth, how much more will he do it when we don't listen to him in our, in, from heaven? And we have such a higher standard before us. Because of the grace of God, there is a high standard for us that we need to be able to live. And maybe he's not going to strike us dead. But he's still going to chastise. Now, and sometimes it might have been easier to have been struck dead than to have been chastised. Now, the good news about being struck dead as a believer is we get to go to heaven. To be chastised means we go through the pain of that punishment and have to go through the test all over again. And if we fail again, we get chastised again with probably a heavier chastisement than the first one because we didn't learn our lesson. And he keeps doing this over and over again. Now, we want to be very careful about this. And then he says in verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, this is Mount Sinai, but now he hath promised saying, yet once more I will shake not... Shake not the earth only, but also heaven. If you want to find this this quote, it's in Haggai 2, verses 6 and 7. God says he's going to shake the very heavens. And that's going to come at the end days when he destroys all of this world, all of this universe, and then recreates it. And it says, I'm going to shake it. And even the tribulation period is going to be shaking of everything. But not of, of everything on this world. But there will come a time when he says everything that's been polluted is gone. And he destroys the heaven and the earth. And maybe even the heaven of heavens because Satan has defiled the heavens of heaven. You know, he've defiled the very heaven that God lives in, so maybe God will destroy everything and start all over. I, but he's definitely going to destroy the earth and, the, and our atmosphere and, this, and the universe. And then clear everything up. And at this word it says. Once more. Signifying the removal of these things that are shaken. And the things that are made. That those things which cannot be shaken. May remain. So the things that are godly. Will remain. When we as Christians. Go before dying. We will go before Christ at the bema of seat judgment. Where all of the works that we have done on this world. Are thrown into the fire. To see what comes out. To be rewarded and say, here is your rewards. These are the things that cannot be shaken. These are the things that I did through you. And now you get to enjoy those rewards for eternity. Nobody is going to come out of that without losing a lot of stuff. Some will lose almost everything. I don't think anybody will come out of it with, without getting something. At the very least, they turn to Christ and have, have, their, have their eternal life. But God will shake it up and say, I have a few things for you. Here's what's remaining. And then he ends this one with, Wherefore, you we receiving the kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and fear. Why do we serve God? Because of the grace that he gives us. We have grace. That grace should motivate us to serve God with the reverence, with the fear, you know. because, as he says at the very end, for our God is a consuming fire. But because of grace, we are not consumed. Because of his grace, we get to live for him. And this is the great news for us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Grace brings us into a relationship with God where we're not in a consuming place because God does not see us except through the blood of Christ as as his children. Now the consequences of our sins are still there. But God says, I see you through grace. I see you through my mercy. I see perfect children. Because your sins are under the blood of Christ. You are in the righteousness of my son. And I see perfection. And I am so thankful that that's how the Father sees us. Now the Holy Spirit gets to try to sanctify us. (laughs) And yes, it gets very complicated because the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all the same same people and the same person, but they're all one. You know, They're they're three people in one, and we don't understand it, never will. The Father sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ, and he's our mediator that says, when he tries to say we've done something, he says, I've shed it, and the Holy Spirit lives in us and is sanctifying us and knows more about where we are now in today's world than God the Father does. Because God the Father has seen us as what we will be... <laughs> when we finally get our glorified bodies. But here we have, God is a consuming fire. He will bring judgment. And if we want to reject him long enough, he will give us a consuming fire upon ourselves, too, and say, all right, uh, you're not listening to the easy, easy, you know, I I slapped your wrist the the first time. I gave you a spanking the the second time. I beat you with the whip the third time. You know." Now we're going to put you on the rack. Oh, you're not listening to that. And he, goes, and he keeps getting heavier and heavier disciplines. You know, And if we continue to not listen, there comes a point where it just the discipline is consuming. We need to be careful about responding to him. And again, it directly shows, do I understand the value of God's grace? And I'm going to tell you, I don't think any Christian really fully understands the value of God's grace to the to the degree that it really amounts to. But many Christians don't understand grace at all. They go, "Well, I've got grace, I can do whatever I want." No, wrong. <laughs> you know, this grace cost a whole lot. And if I really fully understand it, I'm not going to sit there and say, "Well, I can do whatever I want because I'm under grace." I'm going to say, Jesus, you shed your blood so that I could have grace. I don't want to do anything to try to make it worse. And we need to really get to the place where we understand his grace cost great. The cost of grace is so high that we cannot take it lightly. And we should never take it lightly. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Help us to understand the value of your grace, the cost of grace. Help us to always... Turn to you with great love and affection, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, "I hope I will be in heaven." If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and that's is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner, please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com.